Live from London, I'm Ita Suarez in for Julia Chapley and this is First Move and here's your need to know. Inflation increases but there are some signs prices may be cooling. Cash crisis, Chinese property giant Evergrande warns again it could default an Apple upgrade. Rumours swirl ahead of its next big product launch. It is Tuesday, so let's make a move. Welcome once again, everyone, to First Move. Happy Tuesday. Great to have you with us as global investors pour over an encouraging, I think it's fair to say, new report on U.S. inflation came in the last 30 minutes or so. The U.S. reporting within the past 30 minutes that consumer prices rose by a weaker than expected three-tenths of percent last month compared to July. Now, prices rose 5.3 percent year over year, which was also a smaller rise than forecast. How are markets reacting, futures reacting, as we head, as digest this data? Well, U.S. futures, you can see there, which had been trading flat before the release of this report, are now seeing solidly higher, as you can see by the green arrows. Dow, S&P, set to rise for a second straight session. Europe, meanwhile, is pretty mixed. In Asia, let's have a look at markets fair. China and Hong Kong fell by well over 1% amid growing concerns over the state of the Chinese property giant Evergrande. We'll have more on that in just a minute. Evergrande warning, of course, it could default on its huge debts. It's been called the biggest test to the Chinese financial system in years. We'll have much more on that in just a moment. But first, let's get right to our top driver and a closer look at today's inflation numbers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, the best person to have with us here today to digest this. Inflation, to me, remains elevated, but actually the numbers are better than expected. That's exactly right. You know, after six months of sticker shock, we can look in these numbers, we can dig in these numbers and see that it appears to be moderating. These overall month over month uh, price increases, consumer prices, this is what people, real people pay at the grocery store, the gas station and at the mall was up 0.3 percent. And and that is really the weakest reading since January, that month on month reading. So it is not as hot as some of those very brisk paces we saw earlier this summer. When you look year over year, 5.3 percent, 5.3 percent is still looks at its surface to be a a really big number. I mean, if you pay 5.3 percent more today than you did for something a year ago, that's definitely inflation. Uh, but indeed, it's not quite as hot as that 12, 13, 14 year highs that we were seeing earlier this summer. So digging in these numbers while still elevated, there are signs of that transitory inflation that the Fed <laughs> had been um, talking about. I saw a little pullback in used car prices. That's some good news because people who are trying to buy a car in the United States, at least, uh, really seeing some sticker shock there. So that uh, price pulled back. But even on on gasoline, on food, uh, meat, groceries, food away from home, all of these prices are still rising, although rising at a a slower pace than they were at the very, very hot, hot inflation uh, months in the middle of the summer, Isa. Yeah, when I was looking at what stood out to me, if you strip out the food, Christine, and the energy, the numbers really do decrease. But it does put the the Fed in a tough spot. Where do you think they'll go after digesting these latest numbers? You know, it really is sort of score one for Jay Powell here, who had been saying over and over again, look, these kinks in the supply chain, these inflationary pressures, eventually 
will work themselves out. Now, we do know that new car prices rose a little bit. We still have those problems getting uh, computer chips, right? Still having some mm-hmm. delays in making some new cars and in other kinds of products, too. You talk to any CEO who, who uh, imports stuff and puts it on shelves and, and ships it to you or sends it to you, they'll tell you they still are seeing uh, bottlenecks and all kinds of different uh, products. So we're not out of this inflation mess yet, but you can see these little whiffs that um, it is abating here. So I think the Fed for right now stands pat, but clearly, clearly going forward, they're going to look at when they can stop, start tapering, when they can start taking away all of this emergency stimulus uh, that's in the mm. economy and, and they don't have to worry too much about inflation. And if we just have a look at futures, if I can get Bob, my producer, to bring up the futures again, it seems the markets, at least, Christine, like what they are seeing, this data uh, coming out today with CPI and the Consumer consumer Price Inflation Index and uh, and the inflation reading. It's it's suggesting that inflation won't have a stranglehold on the recovery. You know, as you know, the S&P 500 fell a little more than 2% uh, last week, so it's a little more than 2% off record highs. But this has been a market that has been making record after record after record, I think 54 record highs for the S&P 500 this year. Concerns about the Delta variant holding things back last week. It doesn't look like inflation is going to be the the fly in the ointment, at least not today. Christine Romans, thanks very much, Christine. Great to see you. Now, China is currently testing more than 8 million people in two cities for COVID-19 to really try and contain an outbreak fueled by the Delta variant. As Christy Liu Stout reports now from Hong Kong, this time there are a lot of infections among children and some of them are being separated from their parents. In Southeast China, COVID-19 cases are spiking, fueled by the highly infectious Delta variant. New local infections have more than doubled in the province of Fujian. Today, China reported 59 new locally transmitted cases, up from 22 a day earlier, all of them in Fujian. At the epicenter in this latest outbreak is Putian, a city of 3.2 million in the province. And according to state media, the first detected cases involved two students at a primary school there. According to the local government, among the infected in Putian are 30 children under the age of 10. State media outlet Global Times reports that the outbreak is, quote, severe and complicated as it is China's first school-centered COVID-19 resurgence. A local Chinese official in Putian's Xianyou County says that some children are being separated from their parents during quarantine. In an interview with state-run CCTV, the official said this, quote, if the children can be quarantined independently, we will consider separate isolation. If they need parents to accompany them, we will arrange their parents to stay in a room next to them. They therefore can chat with each other with a partition in between, unquote. The rise in infections comes ahead of the week-long National Day holiday starting October 1. It is a time of major domestic travel in China, and officials in Putian have rolled out measures to rein in the outbreak. Residents are advised to not leave the city unless necessary, All schools have suspended in-person teaching. Public venues like cinemas and libraries are closed and people are being urged to work from home. The virus has spread elsewhere in the province to Tranzhou and the coastal city of Xiamen. And like Putian, Xiamen has also rolled out social distancing measures. More than 8 million residents living in Putian and Xiamen will be forced to undergo COVID-19 tests. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Well, also in China, anxious investors are staging a protest at the headquarters of troubled property developer Evergrande. The debt-laden company warns of default risks, saying it's working with financial advisors to examine, quote, all feasible solutions. Shares of Evergrande fell another 12% today. The stock, get this, is down 
80% in the last six months. Ivan Watson's live for us in Hong Kong with the very latest. And, and Ivan, I mean, the outlook certainly doesn't look very bright for Evergrande. We're clearly facing disgruntled investors we saw today. Bring our viewers up to speed as to why it has come to this. Yeah, well, this company has been in trouble for some time, for months now. Uh, it is very unusual to see these kinds of scenes of protests in mainland China, where basically those kind of uh, demonstrations are usually stopped very quickly by the security forces. But here you have this uh, giant property developer that is in massive debt. It has some $300 billion worth of liabilities right now. And as these kind of creditors and investors were starting to protest several days ago at their headquarters in Shenzhen. On Monday, the company put out a statement saying, hey, but recent comments about uh, Evergrande's bankruptcy and restructuring are completely untrue. Well, then look at what they posted today uh, with regulatory bodies here in Hong Kong. Uh, they made a very detailed statement saying that there's no guarantee that the group will be able to meet its financial obligations. It may lead to gross default. Those are the words of the company themselves. Now, you're right now looking at their stock value, which has plunged over the course of the past year, and it's now valued at some 38 U.S. cents, about $2.97 in Hong Kong dollars. Uh, just a, an incredible plunge. The documents that were published today from this company, they said that they've been trying to make money, uh, but that their property sales have gone down for the past three months, and they anticipate uh, even worse sales in September, which is normally supposed to be better for the real estate industry. They also say that some of their other initiatives that they were trying to do to raise uh, cash failed, essentially, until now. So that was trying to sell off part of their electric car company and their property services company. They couldn't get any investors. They tried to sell off uh, their headquarters, not their headquarters, their office tower here in Hong Kong, which they bought in 2015 for the equivalent of about $1.6 billion. They couldn't find anybody to buy that. And so they haven't been able to, to find the money and they owe more than $30 billion uh, over the course of the next year. Listen to what some of the angry investors had to say uh, in their offices in Shenzhen on Monday. If they don't give me my money back, then I'll jump off a tall building. They've cheated me out of all of my money. I have nothing left. We sold everything we had. Both of those apartments so that we could buy a property with Evergrande because you, Evergrande, are one of the top 500 companies in the world. And, you know, the bad news contributed to a slump on both the, the Hang Seng uh, Index, which went down 1.2 percent on Tuesday, and the Shanghai Composite down 1.4 percent, Isa. And for our viewers, really, as you heard, that lady there speaking about her fears, clearly quite visibly angry, is that... You know, Avogandy relies heavily on customers paying for the flats before, before they're actually made. So you can understand why people are so worried. But, you know, Ivan, it is one of the world's most indebted companies. And the fear from those I've been speaking to so far is that, you know, bankruptcy or downfall create a risk of contagion. Give me a sense of what you're hearing from those on the ground as to what kind of broader risk that might have on China's financial system. Yeah, well, some experts are saying that if this does, in fact, collapse this company, and it certainly isn't doing well right now, that uh, there that would pose a, a potential systemic risk to uh, China's uh, financial sector. Uh, 
would it be allowed to fail? Would uh, the government kind of step in to save it? Uh, would they step in to try to help some of these ordinary investors, these people who have, have tried to purchase apart, apartments or property or have uh, invested in its wealth uh, management company? And that's not entirely clear. Uh, would this potentially uh, erode confidence in other property development companies in China, which are also reportedly uh, indebted. None of that is entirely clear right now. It also goes along with a kind of a broader atmosphere where regulators in China have been cracking down on private companies, whether it's in technology or, or in finance or in education over the course of, of past months. And it's contributed to uh, trillions of dollars estimated worth of value disappearing uh, from their market prices. Now, for this company, Evergrande, it's announced that it has brought in outside experts to try to help it potentially with restructuring. So, so keep an eye on this story. It's important. Isa. Yeah, it's a key story. We'll stay on top of it, of course. Like you said, not the only indebted Chinese property company. It'll be interesting to see, though, like you said, Ivan, whether the Chinese government will step in. Ivan Watson there. Thanks very much, Ivan. Great to see you. Now, let me bring you up today the stories making headlines around the world. The international community has pledged more than $1 billion to help the people of Afghanistan. That is according to the UN. Since the Taliban takeover last month and already dire situation has become worse, with millions on the brink of starvation and basic public services simply just not working. CNN international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson joins me now from Kabul. And Nick, so now we have more than a billion dollars being pledged, uh, clearly at a time when Afghanistan needs it. How much of that money will flow to Afghanistan? Uh, and in the end of it, who will be managing the money? Because the fear, of course, is will end up in the hands of the Taliban. Well, of course, the hope is that the vast majority flows here. It comes here as aid, be it food aid, be it uh, medical aid, be it blankets, be it tents, because there's a real concern that with a drought that's uh, going on in the country at the moment, that people will move into cities. They'll be short of accommodation, may even try to move to borders to cross, to, to cross out and leave Afghanistan. Um, concerns that the economy under the Taliban won't have enough income coming into it. So you could find even people in cities uh, running out of uh, food and the basic necessities. 90% of the country here lives on $2 a day. But to the crux of the question, um, who gets the money? It really... Uh, goes into these non-governmental organizations and NGOs that are in effect given that money uh, by contracts by the different countries that are donating. You know, we heard from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday explaining explaining this, the United States giving 64 million in medical aid as part of that more than a billion that the uh, U.N. was able to announce at that donor conference. Um, but what he also said was that the money is not going to end up in the hands of the Taliban. That's the intent of the international community because it comes in in the form of aid. It's not in the form of cash. But then the difficulty for, for the international community, for those aid organizations, is to make sure that they can maintain custody of that aid and that it isn't somehow stockpiled by the Taliban or by others uh, and therefore becomes a form of currency in the country. That's the danger. But the need, the, the need here is absolutely massive, Issa. Yeah, and we heard from the UN Secretary General who, who said yesterday that the country will run out of food, I think it's at the end of this month, uh, and pretty much economy on the verge of collapse. So a story, of course, that we'll stay on top of. Nick Robertson 
for us there in Kabul. Thanks very much, Nick. Now, still to come on First Move, Brazilians are taking to the streets to protest against the president. Amongst them, the governor of Sao Paulo will speak to him next. And then later, going shopping with Shopify. The e-commerce platform is expanding internationally. The company president joins us to discuss. Do stay right here with CNN. First move now. Let's have a look at U.S. stocks uh, and how they're doing as we head to the opening bell. Roughly 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes or so into the opening bell. On track for a subtly higher open, as you can see that uh, there. After that, better than expected read on U.S. inflation that we brought you at the top of the show. As we mentioned, just if you're just joining us, consumer prices rose by less than forecast, 0.3 last month. Core inflation rose by mere one tenth of a percent. Inflation eased on a year-over-year basis too. So clearly still hot inflation, but lower than expected. Oil, meantime, is trading at six weeks high amid fresh concerns about global supply. The International Energy Agency is cutting its production forecast due in part to recent Gulf Coast storms. The Texas coast was slammed early on Tuesday by the Category 1 Hurricane Nicholas just weeks after Hurricane Ida halved oil production, if you remember, in the Gulf region. Now, I want to take you to Brazil. We have seen the last several days, in fact, thousands taking part in protests against President Jair Bolsonaro. Particularly over the weekend, the angry demonstrators who gathered in several major cities called for the impeachment of the country's far-right leader over his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the economy. Among them was the governor of Sao Paulo, Juan Doria, and he joins us live now. Governor, thank you very much for being with us. Good morning. It has certainly been a busy few days in Brazil with protests, I have to say, on both sides of the aisle, the pro and the anti-Bolsonaro. What's your assessment, Governor, of what you have seen from Sao Paulo to Brasilia? Well, thanks for having me and good morning. Well, uh, the removal of President Jair Bolsonaro is a possibility. Is there is a majority of the Congress and that is the understanding. I believe he should be removed from the presidency of Brazil. I think President Bolsonaro has committed several crimes of responsibility, especially against public health in Brazil. And that is a big reason for him to be removed. Of course, who will define this is the Congress, the Brazilian Congress. But uh, as a governor of Sao Paulo, I support this. And, you support uh, I have that? To add that the country needs. Go ahead, go ahead. Now, just, just to add uh, one information more that, uh, in my opinion, the country needs more than ever to be united in the fight for democracy, press freedom, and the preservation of the institutions that we are now being attacked by President Jair Bolsonaro. Let me, let me ask you about that, because we have heard from President Bolsonaro in the last few days, well, in fact, last week, who, like you said, he's been stoking division, he's been stoking mistrust, but he has since backed off kind of his heated comments on Brazil's democratic institutions. I believe he said he said them because of the heat of the moment were his words. Do you believe, Governor, that he's changed his tune? Well, uh, uh, we, we have to keep the democracy in Brazil. Uh, the way to change is uh, on the democracy way. We will not allow Brazil to enter a, a sad period again, as happened in the 60s, when the dictatorship was installed in our country. 
my family was uh, a victim of this uh, authoritarian regime. We were exiled, so I will fight hard to defend the values that I believe personally should sustain the society, the democracy, equality, and freedom in Brazil. People went to the streets this week, as you showed a few minutes ago, uh, to uh, protest and to fight uh, for democracy in Brazil. But you say, you know, I want to just clarify here. The, the President Jair Bolsonaro had been speaking for several days prior to these protests last week, even at the CPAC in Brazil, where he was attacking, in many ways, Brazil's democratic uh, institutions. Do you think, now that he has written that letter and he said it was in the heat of the moment, do you think that old Bolsonaro is gone or do you think it's just uh, a question of days or months before we see that side of him come out again? Well, Bolsonaro is the same person always. Uh, it was just a moment uh, uh, in this week, uh, a quiet moment, but uh, Bolsonaro is the same person in the last two and a half years. He's against democracy, he's attacking democracy, attacking uh, the press, attacking uh, the uh, people as uh, governors in Brazil that make uh, opposition uh, to Bolsonaro. So uh, uh, just two quiet moments, but the Bolsonaro will keep on the same way attacking the democracy in Brazil, unfortunately. Do you think democracy in Brazil is at risk, Governor? Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, that's uh, that's the the true. Brazil needs an alternative to populist leaders, uh, a government that thinks of a country project and knows how to put into practice public policies that encourage the sustainable growth of the economy and the reduction of social uh, inequality. But with democracy, uh, re-electing a corrupt populist government in twenty. Uh, 22 next year would be a big mistake on both mm. the left and the right. We need a government uh, willing to discuss a project that uh, boosts the country economic growth with a focus uh, on job creation, respect for the environment and education for uh, all our children. Let's talk about the elections. We're just over, what, a year and a bit until the big day. I know you've thrown your hat in the ring. I would like to get a sense from you, Governor, of what matters most to Brazilians right now. The economy, coronavirus, the attack on democratic institutions. What do you, would you say is the number one concern uh, right now for Brazilians? Well, uh, still we, we have to fight against uh, COVID-19. Uh, but the second big problem is employment. We need employment to the people. The poverty grows uh, 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 in a very fast way in Brazil. So uh, the balance for the next year will be health and uh, economy and uh, giving, providing uh, new jobs uh, to the Brazilians. Before ending this interview, I would like also to say that I am sad, very sad, to see my country with this such a damaged image in the international market due to the lack of leadership of the federal government. And, and the markets have been reacting, as you, as you say, Governor. I mean, I interviewed one lady uh, over a week and a half ago who said, you know, inflation was going through the roof. 
prices of, you know, tax of gas was very expensive as well. And she said she was eating frozen vegetables because she had no way of cooking it. So that is the reality. The poverty has gone through, through the roof as well in Brazil. How concerned are you about the state of the Brazilian economy right now? Well, uh, the Brazilian economy right now is a disaster, completely disaster. As this lady uh, that you had the opportunity to interview uh, just said, and uh, that's true uh, what she said. Uh, we have a poverty in Brazil. Almost 30 million Brazilians uh, at this moment are in the poverty uh, situation. So uh, we have to move this. We have to create social programs to help our people in Brazil. But to do that, we need a new elections, a new government in Brazil. Okay, let's talk about the elections. Look, Bolsonaro uh, says he wants the electronic vote to be supplemented with paper ballots because he says he's worried of a fraud, although so far that has been completely unsubstantiated. Why do you think he's pushing that narrative? What is he hoping to achieve, Senator, Governor? Good question. Uh, Bolsonaro is, is a uh, psychotic person, is a crazy uh, person. Uh, he was elected by the electronic vote. Uh, we are using electronic vote in the last 25 years in Brazil. Uh, and Bolsonaro is still spread fake news all the time. Uh, President Fernando Henrique, uh, President Lula uh, they, uh, and President Dilma, they were elected by uh, electronic uh, vote. Even Bolsonaro uh, was elected with the same way. Uh, there's no reason to go against that, except to go against the democracy. Uh, we have to keep the focus on important issues in Brazil. Governor, yes or no answer. Do you think that President Jair Bolsonaro will be impeached? Well, uh, that's, this decision is the Congress decision. Uh, uh, we have at this moment 131 uh, uh, demands on the Congress uh, against to remove uh, President Jair Bolsonaro. And so it's a possibility. Is there a majority at the Congress? And that is the understanding. I believe, I believe he should be removed from the presidency. But this decision uh, is uh, a Congress decision at this moment. It's out of your hands, absolutely. João Nuria, Governor of Sao Paulo, thank you. Muito obrigado, bom dia. The Market Open yeah. is next. Do stay right here with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. The bell has rung, US stocks are up and running this Tuesday. Let's have a look how they're faring and as expected, they're higher for a second straight session after today's encouraging read on inflation, which was our top story this hour. U.S. consumer prices came in weaker than expected last month. The numbers playing into Fed Chair Jerome Powell's assurances that higher inflation will not be long lasting. Like in earning news, shares of software firm Oracle are low in early trading. Profits came in above estimates, but revenues missed expectations as competition in the cloud computing space heats up. And in crypto land, Litecoin is weaker after a wild day of trading on Monday. The cryptocurrency soared more than 30% after a press release announcing a partnership with Walmart, the retail giant later calling the press release a hoax. 
Now, independent retailers who sell on Shopify are being told the world is their oyster. The e-commerce platform is allowing them to reach overseas markets easily from a single Shopify store. 1.7 million businesses use Shopify in 175 countries. It has a market cap of $185 billion. The company is also tapping into the buying power of younger consumers in a partnership with a popular social media app, TikTok. We'll get into all of this, of course, with Harley Finkelstein. He's the president of Shopify. Harley, great to have you on the show. Um, I want to talk about your new venture of sorts, and I would like you to explain to our viewers right around the world how Shopify markets will actually work, both from a consumer as well as a seller point of view. Uh, thanks for having me, Issa. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So I, I think it's we all now know that the future of retail is going to be retail everywhere. And we've been breaking down barriers to global commerce for many years, just to level set here. To date, there have been more than 1 billion cross-border orders on Shopify. And in 2020 alone, merchants generated about $20 billion in sales using existing cross-border tools. If you just look at you know two months ago, July 2021, over 27% of all traffic to Shopify stores was from a cross-border buyer. So the benefits are are obvious, right? We we know uh, it increases conversion when you speak to a consumer in their own language using their own currency. But up until now, it's been really limited to much larger merchants. And what we're announcing today with Shopify Markets is that we are now global by default. That means any merchant of any size can actually now take advantage of rolling out cross-border transactions to merchants anywhere in the world. And we take care of the complexity. We make sure that it's easy for a small merchant, maybe someone at their mom's kitchen table or at a coffee shop yeah. that's just getting started to actually sell to a global audience. And I think that's where retail is going. Yeah, and Holly, look, I speak from a purely consumer perspective. I have no mm -hmm. business, especially not, not even if I tried. But I do find the whole experience of buying internationally quite daunting, whereas the currency mm -hmm. conversion, whereas the duty and the, you know, and yeah. import taxes. How do you streamline this? Does this facilitate that? Yeah. So what we're doing is we are leveraging our business intelligence. Uh, again, you had mentioned this. We have more than 1.7 million stores on Shopify. And we know a lot about how people are purchasing, not just in one country, but in more than 175 countries. And so what we're trying to do is make it so that a merchant, again, no matter what size, doesn't have to think about things like taxes or duties or languages or, uh, or, or currencies. And the best part is that all of these cross-border tools are available to merchants right out of the box. Now, if you think about you know, your own experiences, one of the things you, you'll notice is that very large merchants, very large brands are actually having an easier time selling cross-border because they have infrastructure and they have employees and they have staff. You know, and, and a lot of the smaller businesses, what they had to do previously if they wanted to access a global consumer base was they would have to sell on a marketplace or they would have to sell through a retailer. But that doesn't allow them to sell direct. And so if you look at Alessi, for example, one of my favorite uh, Italian kitchenware brands that my wife and I have at our home here, they were never able to sell cross-border before. Their version of cross-border was selling uh, on someone else's marketplace. Now they can sell direct. And so when you think about things like duty, taxes, customizing a catalog, uh, international domains, international pricing, local payment methods, that's a lot for a small business to think about. And now with Shopify markets, everything is streamlined. And like you said, you look, with, with cross-border shopping, of course, comes increased supply chain issues. Are you working, Ali, with merchants to try and address these challenges? 
Yeah. So look, we know that supply chain issues are, are, are challenging. There are issues right now, but really those are short-term issues. One of the things that the pandemic showed us and proved to us is that entrepreneurs and, and, and small businesses can be very resilient. What our merchants told us, however, is that the biggest pain point was not actually supply chain issues, but more solving for things like duties. And so Shopify Markets brings this transparency to checkout so consumers easily understand the cost of duties, which removes uh, friction, of course, but also increases the amount of, of purchase power that they have. And I think one of the things that we as consumers will begin to expect and demand from anyone we buy from, whether it's a small business or it's, you know, Allbirds or Figs, two Shopify brands that started with us that are, you know, now public or going <laughs> public, we are now going to expect that every single brand has this great international experience, regardless of where we're located. Well, I can't let you go without asking you about uh, your partnership with TikTok. How is it going? Because I read Kelly Jenner was among the early adopters, of course, with her cosmetics brand. Yeah, it's a really exciting partnership. One of the things that I think most people assume about Shopify is, you know, we're sort of the e-commerce company. We're the largest player in e-commerce globally, and that's how most people associate us with. But we really do believe the future of retail is retail everywhere. And we want brands that use Shopify to be able to access surface areas wherever transactions may happen. And yes, it happens online, and it also happens offline, which is why we have our point-of-sale product. But more and more, it's happening on places like Instagram and Facebook and, of course, TikTok. And so now, very easily, we're able we're enabling merchants on Shopify to embed products in those short form videos so that someone like Kylie Jenner, who has millions and millions of followers on TikTok, can easily embed her lip kit product, her brand or company into the video. And it doesn't feel like an ad. It doesn't feel like you're trying to push product, but rather it's organically integrated into the entire TikTok experience. And so one of the things, a better way to think about Shopify today is that we're the world's first retail operating system. And to be the world's first retail operating system, we need to enable merchants to sell wherever their customers might be. And, you know, the, the modern day town square are places mm. like TikTok. Very clever, you're, you know, what you're doing with TikTok. Uh, Harley Finkelstein, wish you best, best of luck, president of Shopify. Thanks very much. Great Thank to you, see you. Thanks for having me. NFTs are back in the spotlight. We speak to one of the most active players in the digital space as he prepares for a very special artwork auction. Gary V joins me next. Now, you might remember how a few months ago, NFTs and non-fungible tokens were all the rage. After all, we talked about them on this show on more than one occasion. After a bit of a summer lull, they are now back in the spotlight. The US Open tennis tournament launched its first NFT with entrepreneur and one of this market's pioneers, Gary. Uh, and there's more. He's all about to auction some of his NFT artwork at the auction house Christie's. I'm pleased to say that Gary V, as he's commonly known here, is with me now. Gary, great to, to have you again on the short show. Thank you. Let's, let's talk about the, the exhibit that you coming up, this partnership with Christie's. What can we expect? Well, you know, a lot of people forget that there's a lot of ways to use NFTs. They may eventually be tickets. They may be access to a restaurant. They may be many, many things, not just art. And my project, VFriends, was very unique because unlike most projects that are all made in digital art, I actually made them and drew them myself physically, then clamped them with PSA, and now I've teamed up with the most prestigious auction house in the world, Christie's, to auction off five original art pieces. So not the NFTs that a lot of my community is holding of the five characters, but the actual original art. And I think that that will inspire people to continue to be creative. There's so many ways to slice this. 
And we're seeing some of that. I think I just saw a, a fly and a gorilla yes. as we're looking. But explain to our viewers, Gary, you know, why partner with Christie's? I mean, is this you trying to uh, target a new audience, you know, or is this trends that you have seen with, you know, the purchase of other NFTs? Could you imagine telling somebody that doodled in high school and really liked it, but always thought of themselves <laughs> as a businessman that one day- I should have kept I, mine, I should have kept I, mine. I mean, my, my mother and father, Sasha and Tamara, watching this right now, they love Christie's. They always aspired and dreamed, they're immigrants, to maybe buy something there. And now their son is selling art. <laughs> Christie, why? Because it elevates the brand. I have people who are watching right now that own the gorilla, own the tiger, own the you're gonna die fly. This is my Disney, this is my Pokemon, this is my character IP based uh, reality and I'm gonna build this for the next 40 to 50 years and people underestimated this project in the OG NFT land and this is another execution that is not gonna allow them to underestimate it anymore. And how much are we looking at? I mean, I remember reading that an NFT was recently sold at Christie's something like $69 million. Do you think we'll start that. seeing more <laughs> NFTs in kind of mainstream auction houses? Yes, that I believe. Don't forget, this incredible auction from Christie's also has pure NFTs from the incredible project Artblocks. It also has the first NFTs uh, on Ethereum curio cards. Uh, mm. I hope that more kids th that actually like to draw do what I did and turn them into NFTs. I think we'll see more, but this is unique because this is actually art, right? This is physical paper. Uh, this yeah. is art, but the NFTs, I mean, the, the cheapest NFT right now in VFriends is about $75,000, $80,000 just for the NFT. This is the original kind of sell. If you look at the way Disney sells sell for, you know, look, I, I, I think it's going to be a pretty nice how, number. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, how much? How much, Gary? I really don't know. Actually, Christie's asked me to set pricing and I said, start it at zero. I'm that confident that the market will understand what this is. So anything, it will make me happy because I know what I'm going to do to bring value to that over the next five decades. Uh, yeah, I think I should start using some of my kids' drawings. You know, I've got a two and a five-year-old. <laughs> who who knows? There might be a business there. Look, I don't know if I've got time, but let me ask you this. It's completely unrelated Please. to your business. Okay. I want to get your thoughts on what we saw in the last 24 hours with Litecoin. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, what we saw? Litecoin? Yeah, so we saw that the dumper, dumper schemes, the pump and dump schemes. Do you Got remember it. with Walmart? I... I can't even explain to you how little focus I have on anything but what I'm doing in my arena in this world. And so I apologize, but I don't have a great take. I don't like to talk about things when I don't know. You are a true professional. Stick with, a, stick with your business, fantastic. Well, Gary, let us know how you do, how much it sells for. Great to have you on the show, Thank Gary V, everyone. Thanks Thank very much. Thank you so much. Well, staying in the crypto space, last week we had the big development in El Salvador, where there's a controversial law that makes Bitcoin legal tender went into effect. President Nayib Bukele is spearheaded the move, and he continues to defend it. But as Rafael Roman Rai reports, even his traditional allies are now criticizing it. They have come from across the country, bringing their best cattle in high hopes for a tidy profit. Welcome to Aguilares, a town in north-central El Salvador where live cattle trading is a long-time tradition. It's the kind of place where you look at people in the eye. When a deal is made, you shake hands and exchange cold, hard cash. 
Other than feed and pasture, these cattle ranchers now have an additional worry. They know the government has legalized a new digital currency called Bitcoin and rumors are running rampant. The truth is that it's not that simple, this rancher says. What if you don't know how much it's worth or how much it's going to get devalued tomorrow? What if it goes up? It's like gambling. Earlier this month, El Salvador became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender in addition to the U.S. dollar. President Nayib Bukele says using Bitcoin as legal tender will attract foreign investment, help lower commissions on remittances and give an alternative to people outside the banking system. Analysts for the International Monetary Fund, which provided an emergency loan to El Salvador last year and is working on another, have warned that adopting Bitcoin as legal tender posed serious risks to a country's financial stability and integrity. When the law went into effect on September 7, the cryptocurrency market crashed, losing billions in value. And the government's digital wallet for Bitcoin has experienced several glitches that were still not fully fixed a week after the launch. The younger generations and some small business owners have embraced the cryptocurrency. But here in Aguileras, even those who support the president otherwise say introducing Bitcoin was a mistake. Everything that he's done is good, at least what he had done so far, this rancher says. But introducing this currency was not right. Which bank is backing it, he wonders. You have to be patient and get information about it so that you know how you can best use it and if it's convenient or not, this rancher says. If the president is wrong, then we're all wrong. For now, most of these ranchers say they will stick to what they know, a cash system that's worked just fine for generations. And even though some are open to using a cryptocurrency in the future, their main worry is that Bitcoin can be as volatile as this bowl. Rafael Romo, CNN, Mexico City. And after the break, could 13 be Apple's lucky number? There's a big product launch today that sent the rumor mill into overdrive. We'll look at what's expected in two minutes' time. Now, bigger batteries, crazy new cameras and stacks, more storage. Those are just some of the iPhone rumors flying around ahead of today's big media event from Apple. CNN Samantha Kelly is all over this for us and she joins us now. Samantha, what can we expect from today's announcements in terms of innovation, in terms of upgrades? Sure. Uh, So Apple, there's a lot at stake for Apple. The iPhone remains a massive revenue driver for the company, central to its ecosystem. Last year, it had massive, massive sales related to people upgrading for the 5G. This year won't be as revolutionary as that 5G component, more incremental updates. Uh, Let's start with the display. Expected to have uh, more screen that's less obstructed. So at the top of the iPhone, there's a little bar called the notch, and that's where the ID technology resides. There's sensors and there's a microphone. It's expected to either disappear or shrink so you can do more scrolling. Also an under display touch ID, an always on uh, display as well. Longer lasting battery. This is one of the things that people always have on their wish list. They want battery to last even longer. We might see that. More storage, a one terabyte perhaps uh, storage option. Uh, Right now, I mean that's so big. Right now 
now on the, the pro models have a 512 gigabyte. So you might be able to have even more storage, um, updated camera, more features, uh, portrait mode, one of the more popular features on the iPhone might eventually come to video. Uh, different uh, system altogether. Right now on the back of an iPhone, a camera is, the cameras are more vertically aligned. It might be diagonal to allow for uh, more censoring and processing on the device as well. Uh, and then might be some higher prices, new devices beyond the iPhone, even though that's the flagship that will be announced today. Uh, new Apple, um, Apple Watch as well, uh, and new AirPods, uh, maybe a new iPad, iPad mini, and Apple TV plus uh, new content. There's been lots of, uh, you know, Ted Lasso has been such a success in the morning show, so we might see more shows announced today as well. It's a long list as we're looking. We've got a graphic looking at the long list of what they may, they may yeah. announce today. But, Samantha, look, the perennial question, iPhone question, I, I, I believe every year I see or every couple of years is how much is this little piece of the new piece, a piece of kit is going to set us back? Right. It's a really good question because right now the pro models are in the four figure range, which is a lot to pay for. Like you said, something that just fits in your pocket. Uh, so right now, analysts are saying that the iPhone could be more expensive than usual due to the chip shortage and the onus might be the rise of the price might be placed on the consumers in order to pay a little bit more. We don't know exactly how much. My guess is it's probably, uh, you know, somewhat incremental. Apple does want people to upgrade. Uh, they do want people to spend that money, and Apple usually doesn't have to do too much to get people to do that. So my guess is that there will be a, a slight change. Uh, usually when Apple announces a new iPhone, then that that set number is very similar or the same to what its preceding devices mm. cost, but this year uh, probably a bit more. Sam Kelly there. Thanks very much, Sam. I'm sure we'll touch base tomorrow on what they announced. <laughs> And finally, on first move, social and political issues inspired some of the fashions at the Met Gala, one of the most expensive and elitist events of the year. New York Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez turned up wearing a gown with Tax the Rich, as you can see it written on the back. Fellow lawmaker Carolyn Maloney also sent a message calling for equal rights for women in a purse saying, uh, yes. And that's it for us. Thanks very much. I'm Isa Suarez. Thanks very much for watching. Next, we join CNN USA for live coverage as the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, testifies before the Senate about Afghanistan. Do stay right here with CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.